What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these ND Hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. All right. I'm here with Nathan Bechez and Dan Chipper, the founders of Every. How's it going, guys? Good. Thanks for having it's us. going good. Yeah. Happy to be here. So Every is a, a very interesting business. I want to let you guys describe it. I don't want to butcher it, um, but I don't find... I don't see a lot of publications like Every on the internet every day. So what is Every and, and why'd you guys start it? Yeah. Um, every is a bundle of business-focused newsletters. So the idea is we want to write about every topic in business eventually. We want to write about every industry, every job role, every broad subject area, um, every company uh, in a bundle where readers can pay one price and they get access to everything that we make. And there's a couple of differences between what we do and what other kinds of media companies do. One is we focus on analysis and commentary. Uh, so we're not doing news. We're not doing scoops. Um, we're really writing pieces that make you think about the world differently. Two is we write from a practitioner's perspective. So we want to write about business and we want to write for people who are in their business lives and it kind of helps make them better. Yeah, like utility is kind of like a key thing that we focus on. Uh, the last thing is we're just structured a little bit differently. Uh, we're structured as a writer collective. So what that means is we're somewhere between, uh, for our writers, writing uh, uh, writing for something like the New York Times and uh, writing a Substack. where on the kind of media company side of things um, or writing for media company side of things, we, we provide writers with um, money like upfront to help them concentrate on their on their business. We provide distribution. So a big thing that we do is we have a platform where we're matching readers to writers and we're, we're driving readers uh, to writers. Um, so you're not just kind of on your own. Um, we provide a, a trusted brand. We have, an, we have editors um, to help you make the best work possible. So we provide a lot of the stuff that a media company would. Um, and then on the other side of things, um, we provide upside. So we, we measure for writers how many readers, how many subscribers they have, and we pay them a percentage of their subscription revenue. And then we also give them their list if they leave. So if for, for whatever reason it doesn't work out, you get a list of your emails so you can kind of take your audience where you want to go. We're not just trying to like lock you in um, to keep writing for us, even if it's not the deal isn't working anymore. It's a lot. You guys are doing pretty much everything. I mean, even one of the things you just talked about will be very hard to do. Like, oh, we're just connecting readers to writers. Like that is a full business in and of itself. And yet that's like one of 10 things that you're doing. Uh, are you guys transparent at all with like how it's going? Like how many readers you have or subscribers you have or revenue? Like how can we get a sense of, of how this grand experiment is working out? No, we're, we're totally opaque. Uh, zero data <laughs> here. No, we're, it's interesting because like... Um, we feel like it's it's going pretty well. It's definitely um, so. I think Dan, what are the last like publicly shared numbers that we? Uh, so we're at like twenty four hundred paying subscribers. Uh, we have about thirty five thousand, thirty six thousand um, free subscribers, and we have I think thirteen newsletters now. And we work with about twenty writers. Some of them are leads, so they're the people that run the newsletters, and some of them are like just uh, help here and there with production or writing smaller or, like guest articles or, or stuff like that right. as contractors. Yeah, cool. Yeah. 2,400 paid subscribers. That's quite a lot. That's uh, What is your business model? I think you charge like a couple hundred bucks a year. Yeah, after it's a 200 trial. a year, uh, which is kind of like highly encouraged. And then optionally, it's $20 a month if you like really want to. That's awesome. <laughs> but with you, if you get the yearly, you get a two-week free trial. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I went to your pricing page and it's like, it's hard to find the monthly option. <laughs> like you do a really good job driving people to like the yearly option, which makes sense because that's like way more revenue in your pocket up front. That's money you can use to go hire writers or go, you know, grow your website or whatever it is you want to spend your money on. Yeah. And like, actually, the really key thing about it that we that we learned from our, our investor, Eric Stromberg uh, from Bedrock, is that it gives us a year to get better versus the month. Because basically, every time you get the credit card statement, you're like, is this worth it? And so, we can only improve so much month over month. But in a year, I mean, Hopefully, we're going to be dramatically different a year from now. Um, and so, it just gives us more time, basically. But also, it's funny because like that design of that subscribe page was partially a product of just really trying to get it out the door pretty quickly. And so, we don't want to be like too obnoxious about like hiding the monthly plan. It was more like, you know, we should add that back in kind of because at first, we're thinking <laughs> of not having it. And it was like, what's the fastest way to add it? But yeah, we should probably... Right. We don't want to have any like, you know, dark patterns. <laughs> I like so. how it is. I don't think it's a dark pattern. I okay. mean, it's up to you to decide how you want to charge for your business. And it's up to customers to decide whether or not they want to pay that or not. And if what you want to do is emphasize the yearly plan, like that's completely your prerogative. And probably it makes a lot of business sense too. So why not? 
So I want to talk about the, uh, I guess the flip side of your business model, which is like where this money is, is going. Um, you know, it's obviously coming in from readers who like your writing, but you're structured as a writing collective, I believe you said, which writer means collective. that it's, it's, it's not like, you know, you're sort of typical media company owned by you guys and the writers just get like a salary. How does it work? Yeah. So basically what happens is when a, when a reader signs up, uh, we ask them in a survey, uh, like on the sign up flow, Hey, like what publication did you primarily subscribe for? And then we basically attribute that reader's revenue, that reader's monthly subscription fee to that writer. Um, and at the end of the month, what we do is we just basically calculate which publications have which readers attributed to them. And then we, we have some revenue split with that publication where usually it's about 50% that we try to standardize it. So it's, it's always around 50% with, with, with writers. Um, and for any reader that we have attributed to them for that month, we pay them their percentage of the revenue. So with, with some of the writers that we work with, we have kind of like monthly minimums where, um, before you've built in a big enough audience to like get subscription revenue, um, we just pay you to essentially to like write your articles. And so if the subscription revenue in any particular month is greater than your monthly minimum, you make the subscription revenue. If it's lower than your monthly minimum, you make the minimum. Um, so you have something coming in the door and you're not just like kind of writing into the void for many, many years without getting any, any money for it. This is a fascinating business model. I'm obsessed with this because I think media on the internet, it's, like, it's been changing quite a lot. You know, we've seen like the rise of the creator economy the last couple of years. And we've seen, um, I don't know, like all sorts of like ups and downs with like traditional sort of news media as well, like the death of newspapers and the rise of like online news and the New York Times, like figuring out a subscription model and Substack coming along and basically, you know, peeling off a bunch of journalists. And it's What's interesting to me about it is like, I have no idea where things are going. You know, like it doesn't seem like there's any obvious like path that we're headed down. We're like, oh, this is the one right way to do things and this is going to win out. But I think your model has that potential because it's extremely, absurdly, ridiculously writer friendly. And I think ultimately, if like you're going to be friendly to anyone, you want to be friendly to the people who are creating the content. Like that's kind of like the hard side of the marketplace to, to get started. So how do you guys look at like yourself within this broader ecosystem of people reading online? Like, do you think your model is the future? I hope so. <laughs> um, it's really too, it's, it's too early to tell, but I do think it's really, I think it's really appealing because like I was the first employee at Substack and I think Substack is amazing for people who are either you know, have a huge audience already, or, you know, maybe they're just really determined and they're, they're willing to really take a big risk on themselves and just really focus, or maybe you've just got a lot of money and time and, you know, and so you've got a long runway or something. There are some cases, but it's generally, it's a very unforgiving kind of like experience curve where it's very steep in the early part of the curve. And traditionally the way that if you look at most great writing in history and analysis or content or whatever you want to say, it's like, that's not the the way it's been produced is not you start out as a, you know, 20 something, maybe you graduated from college and then you're just writing stuff on the internet. Like you probably had like mentors, you you had like, you know, a community that you came up in, uh, you, you, you were able to learn your craft and then maybe redefine the craft, you know, if you like really become a master. And, um, it's really hard for that to happen just like on sort of like cold, hard and personal internet platforms. And so we wanted to carve out a zone where there's just a lot more support. And so, I mean, the number one most obvious thing is just in terms of like money <laughs> and, but also in terms of driving audience. But I think there's this other thing that it's really easy to underestimate, but I think is really important. I can testify for me personally has been critically important, which is, um, having a group of people and like specifically really like an editor, that's just going to be your first best group of readers. And that you're writing sort of, um, not sort of for like just the numbers, because it's really easy to very quickly get demoralized. Um, a lot of writers that we've worked with have said, hey, like, you know, this is like one of my best pieces and I honestly would have probably killed it, but you encouraged me to like keep writing it. And that kind of thing is, I think, not to be underestimated, but it's, it's you know, as like my MBA brain is like, how do you quantify that or whatever, you know, it's very appealing to just be like, oh, the sovereign creator, totally standalone, totally independent. But it's like, not, I mean, you're dependent upon Stripe, you're dependent upon Twitter, you're dependent upon like whatever Substack or Ghost or Review. Like, there's always dependencies. And the question is, what dependencies do you want to choose? And like, do they care about you? Like, are they invested in you? Like, literally? 
Um, and so we want to be a little bit more of a traditional thing while still offering. It's like, yes, writers should get a better deal. Writers should get wealthy much faster than, than they do. If you're like on the, you know, whatever you live in Brooklyn and you make 50 K and you write really amazing stuff, but it's, you know, all the upside goes to the company you work for. Cause maybe the business model is really hard and they can't pay a lot of that upside out. So anyway, there's a lot, there's a lot to it, but that to me is what's exciting about it. Like just personally, is that realistic though? Because I think, you know, with any sort of platform full of creators, whether it's something like Spotify, where you've got a lot of artists, or it's something like your publication, Every, where you've got a lot of writers, they're usually people who are just the heavy hitters. You know, like 80, 90% of the traffic and the readers are going to like a very small number of people who just for whatever reason, they just have more reach, they write better stuff to make better music. And it's hard for everybody else to sort of, I think, make a living <laughs> that's comfortable and reasonable when things are so inequitable, yeah. uh, so to speak. So how does how do you think about that? Is, you know, is that something you want to solve or is that something you look at as totally okay? That's a that's a great question. I think um, we, we certainly see a, a distribution in terms of the writers we work with in terms of like uh, people who are making money or not making money. But our theory of that is maybe specifically in our case, the, the distribution might be a little bit less skewed than you might think, or at least the bottom end of the curve or the middle end is like, the the standard is like a little bit higher or what you could actually end up making is a little bit higher because we're building um, niche subscription newsletters for business topics. So even if you have like, you know, a thousand, uh, a thousand subscribers or 500 subscribers, um, like paying subscribers in a particular niche, like usually for any kind of business topic, that's fairly achievable. And that is a good living. And that's profitable for us. And so we, we probably expect that, you know, some of our writers will, will be really like a lot bigger than others, but that the, the ones that are doing even averagely well, um, are going to make enough to, to make a living. And it won't, it won't be this like, um, you're, you have like 300 million listens versus like 10. It's more like, I don't know, Ben Thompson has like 3 million subscribers. So maybe at the top end of people that we work with, like that, that's the achievable outcome. Um, or I don't even know if that's really the right number, but like, let's assume it's around there. Um, but for in the bottom end or, or even the average end, like having a thousand or 5,000 subscribers, which if you're a good writer writing about business topics over a significant period of time, you can get there. It's achievable. We don't, we don't think it'll, it'll, the dynamics are essentially the same for this kind of a subscription business, um, writing about business topics. Yeah. I also think there there is a little bit of a false dichotomy between being really nurturing and investing in new talent and being a hits-driven business. If you think about like HBO, HBO is famous for having people come to them that are new and create amazing stuff that that like never could have existed before, both in terms of the acting talent. It's not like, it, like if you compare like, you know, um, sort of like a Warner Brothers film, average, you know, top grossing film in the air to like the top thing on HBO, HBO actors, they're going to have some famous people, but there's a lot of people that are new to you. And that that is part of what makes it so compelling is every, everybody likes discovering fresh talent, you know, and, 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 you know, both in terms of writers and directors, there's a healthy balance, I think there, that's really important to keep striking also like i mean totally different world but that one i've gotten very into lately formula one so like the top two teams are red bull and mercedes and those also happen to be the top two teams in terms of their investment in new drivers so they have this incredible pipeline and young talent and like right now the top formula one racer max verstappen is like also one of the youngest ever and there's this sort of like direct thing of investing in in new talent and achieving the sort of like top level results so um yeah, we want to be both nurturing and have really huge hits and also have it not be this huge pressure if you want to serve like a pretty niche audience and keep it tight. And like, you know, you don't have – everything doesn't have to be like, you know, the the biggest thing ever as long as it's an right. awesome thing, you know? Yeah. I have so many questions I want to ask you guys about all this stuff because like finding writers in and of itself is very difficult. I think in your particular niche, like business, most of the people who have – the expertise are also like operators who are running businesses <laughs> and maybe they don't necessarily want to start careers as writers, right? So how do you get business writers? Like it seems like the hardest niche to get um, branding. Like how do you structure your website and your brand and like how did you make those decisions? Nathan, mm-hmm. I know you worked at Substack. You're like, you said the first employee at Substack? Yeah. And Dan, I'm not sure what your background is. How did you, how did you come to meet Nathan? <laughs> I, I guess I met Nathan probably like six or seven years ago, maybe something like that. Uh, I, I just moved to New York. He was in New York. Um, we were kind of, we were both in the tech scene. I just sold my, my previous company. Um, before this, I, I worked on an enterprise software company called Firefly that I sold to Pega, which is a big public uh, software company and had ran the business inside of Pega for a little while. And we met after that 
And I think Nathan was working, I think you were working at General Assembly at the time. Yeah. Um, and I remember I recently, when we were, when we were like launching the company, officially we were writing this whole letter and I was going back through my notes to like try to find the first meeting that I had with Nathan and we went to drinks together. And I just remember being so inspired by Nathan feeling like the kind of person that builds products that come out of his soul. And I was like, I mm. want to do that. That was like my first impression of Nathan. Um, wow. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, he has this like, he has that thing and that, that, that felt very inspiring to me because I, I was coming out of an enterprise software business where I really liked what I was doing and I was super into it, but it wasn't, enterprise software is usually not your soul. And if it is your soul, like, I mean, good for you. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> um, and, uh, and so we, we kind of stayed in touch over the years. We did a podcast together. And I think always kind of looked at each other as people that we would eventually maybe want to work with. We did actually for uh, like a month or two, like three or four years ago, try to work together a little bit. But basically, you know, I, I sold that company. I spent a couple of years just like thinking about what I wanted to do with my life. I spent a year or, or more writing a novel. Um, so, uh, like really like went far and wide in terms of like what I, what I thought I might want to do. And eventually, uh, probably two years ago at this point, I decided I wanted to start a productivity software company, something like a notion or like a Rome or something like that. Like I've always been very into productivity, very into notes and note taking. Um, and so the way that I decided to start it was, um, I decided just, I wanted to start a newsletter first. So I figured I would do a newsletter where I would interview people about their, all their productivity, like systems and processes. And I'd use that as like a way to get customer interviews for the thing I wanted to build. Cause I'd, I'd be able to understand what is the productivity stack of all these people and I'll know how the product I want to build fits into their life. And then, uh, over time, I'll probably like, uh, build an audience doing that and I'll be able to launch this app that I'm building to those people. So I started writing the newsletter. It's called Super Organizers. It's still around and just got very like psyched about it because, uh, people loved it. Like it was growing really quickly. And I was like, wow, this whole newsletter thing is like really kind of interesting. Um, it seems like it's taking off. I, I love writing. Maybe like I should do a newsletter business instead of like a build an app for it. And eventually, uh, I, I, I kind of kept thinking about it and I was like, maybe we should, maybe we should do like business newsletters and because uh, there seems like there's a lot of opportunity in business newsletters. And I was thinking about like who to work on it with. And obviously Nathan's name came up. Like Nathan's been doing this kind of thing for, for a while and he's was the first employee at Substack. So I called him and he was immediately like, yes, this sounds awesome. And we started, we started working together. So that, that was the original kind of impetus of it. Yeah. Nathan, how did you decide to, to leave Substack? Well, it's very easy. They told me that I should leave. <laughs> Basically, this is a uh, very interesting. I it has been a huge journey for me. Like I don't know, in terms of like personal growth or like self awareness or something like that, in the past couple years, because I've always really struggled with the fact that I'm extremely passionate about ideas and I get really excited about them. And when I get excited about something, I have like unlimited energy and focus to work on it. But I tend to like gravitate towards doing my own thing because I don't want to like, you know, yuck anyone else's yum kind of, I'm like very, I like these feelings come up in me of like, ah, like, uh, I don't like that, you know, and like, I don't know what to do with that. And it's been a huge thing that Dan and I have like worked on together to like, in order to become really like a, a really high functioning partnership, which I think we are today. We weren't when we first started working together. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, when I was at Substack, basically, you know, I was the first employee. It was a very general kind of like job role. It was like, cool, you're, I guess we'll call you the VP of product. Um, you're just generally can write code and host a podcast and design interfaces and go to meetings with writers. Like I was just like kind of doing everything. I was like, you know, uh, another joke title for me, it was like head boy <laughs> from, from Harry Potter or whatever, um, as in like from the house or whatever. Uh, so anyway, there, it, it was like, it was really fun. I love the founders of Subside. I loved working with them on everything, but also I was a pain in the ass for them. I was a really big pain in the ass because I had a lot of feelings and opinions about everything that we were doing, you know, and um, it, those are hard to work through. Tell me, tell me about that. Cause I, I think a lot of founders are in this position where like, yeah, you're opinionated, you want things done the way you want them to be done. And that's, not a bad thing if you've got, got good ideas. It makes it hard to work for other people. But right. you know, you it now does. have a co-founder. <laughs> you have to collaborate at some point. How do you how do you uh, resolve those two things? Therapy. Um, <laughs> no, I mean honestly, but also just like uh, how you resolve those two things is 
for me, definitely still a work in progress to some extent. I think the most important thing is to have a partner that is just committed to you and wants to work with you on it and can hold your feelings about things. And for me to learn, okay, I can take a step back. Okay. I feel really strongly about this and Dan can like sense it. And I'm like, all right, but like, all right, let's figure out what we can actually do. Like, it's like, we can calm down now that I've had my like emotion about it or something. I don't know. There's like a lot. And, and I know it's really still hard for Dan in addition to, you know, and like everybody has their things. I don't want to overstate like I'm some like unique basket case or whatever. I think there are a lot of people that anyone, any team I've ever been a part of, I've seen people argue about what should be done, you know? Yeah. Because people yeah. care. There's a lot at stake. And people have different experiences, which lead them to be sensitive to different risks, right? And that's kind of what it comes down to is like, what ideas can you perceive? What risks can you perceive? I think with Dan, really just the key thing has honestly been willingness to work on it together with me and then kick me to the side. <laughs> you use the word, so I think, that's the feelings. Use the word feelings, I think, two or three times. Use the word emotions a couple of times. So it really uh-huh. does sound like therapy. It does sound like you're very self-aware. And yeah. uh, I don't know if a lot of people in the tech space who are starting companies use any of those words. So I'm not surprised you guys have been able to work through things. Well, it's funny because this is really like, I mean, this is hugely dense influence on me. I had never really, I had, I think technically been to therapy a little bit in like high school when I was, I was like diagnosed with ADHD or whatever. And at the time I was kind of like, I don't know, like nice to have some Adderall, I guess, because it helped with homework and stuff like that. But like, I, I didn't really like buy into it or really understand it at all. And so I'd never been to therapy before. I never really thought about like how my brain worked or anything else like that. And, um, yeah, Dan was just a little bit more like experienced with, with therapy and just more attuned to it. And so, you know, we went in, basically like I started therapy, Dan, Dan and I started doing couples therapy and it's honestly been the best like investment in our business ever, because I think the number one reason why most companies fail is either because the co-founders have some conflict that causes them to just like lose trust, lose respect, you know, something like that happens or it's like this cold war simmering thing where they're just not really kind of rowing in harmony together because they just choose to let some things go uncommunicated. And we kind of share this theory that like the business world is like just bursting to discover therapy basically. And coaching is kind of like the very early signal of like tip of the spear, but so much of work is about emotions and communication. And, you know, turns out like that therapists are, that's what they're there for. So uh, yeah, it's really good. They're super useful. And, you know, to your point, a lot of companies implode because co-founders don't get along. And it's one of those things where I think when you're looking at companies from the outside in, like you don't see co-founder disputes. Like if I'm looking at Substack, like I have no idea what's going on with the co-founders. And so I think when people try to start companies, it's easy to underestimate like how important that relationship is and how important to your success, like keeping that relationship healthy is. And I'm sure there's like a bunch of people listening to this right now who are working on companies with co-founders and things aren't going well and they haven't even thought about, you know, getting a therapist or trying to resolve things because that seems like a distraction from the real work of writing code or hiring journalists or whatever it is they need to do. Yeah. Yeah. I think everyone has this idea that everyone else has their shit together more than they do. And when you like, when you pull back the curtain on it, it's like everyone has these like conflicts at work and everyone is internally feeling all these things that they don't really express. They're anxious, they're depressed, they're whatever. Uh, and I'm always surprised like when I, t- when I talk to someone who's really successful that they feel that way. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. So, um, I think uh, like for us, one, one of the things we do is we have a, we have a podcast called Talk Therapy where we just like, we talk about our own inner experiences and then we also like interview people about their experiences. And it's, it's really, it's really interesting to see that. And yeah, I, I do think like when I was younger, I was very much on the like, you just got to like write code and make the right decisions and you know, everything will be, everything will be great. But I think what that misses is that business, the cliche is business is about people. Um, but it is true. And if it is about people, then the way that people behave and the way that people think and the way that people feel is like incredibly important. And being able to like figure out how to work in harmony with, with people, even when people have different opinions is, is a really, uh, and different ways of processing the world is, I, I think we both feel is kind of a little bit of a superpower if you can, if you can do it. And therapy is a really good tool to understand like what you're bringing to situations and how your own brain works and then also how, how others' brains works. Um, and so it's been really great for us. Couldn't agree more. So what did your partnership look like at the beginning in terms of, you know, the, the non-relationship part of it, like the actual decisions you were making, like the, the down to the brass tax stuff? Like how do you uh, get a company like Every off the ground? 
Well, one of the things we we did first is we we had this idea for this media company. Like, I think from the very beginning, we want to do a bunch of different business newsletters. We wanted to do it in this certain kind of style, which is for practitioners. We we thought we we might want to do it as like as a bundle where people could pay one price and get access to all this stuff because Nathan had seen um, some of that stuff, like the signs that that something like that might work from his time at Substack. And what we did first is we were we kind of wanted to do it pretty step by step. Um, we wanted to do it pretty organically. So we, it's not, we didn't like announce, Hey, we're doing this thing called every. We're not, we didn't say like it's, it's going to be a bundle or a media company or whatever. What we did was, um, I was running my newsletter super organizers, which was pre-existing. And then Nathan started a newsletter called divinations. And we kind of just like ran them as separate newsletters for a little while because we were, we, we thought it would be a good idea to just at base, what we're doing is we're making content or writing. And the best way to test that is to just write. Um, and see if people will pay for it and see if it could grow. And we figured if, if that worked, then we'd take the next step. And so we did that for a couple months. It was working. People were, people were paying for super organizers. They were paying for divinations. They were reading it and really liking it. And then we were like, okay, let's take the next step. Um, and the next step was testing a, testing the idea of a bundle. Will anybody want to pay for two publications at once? And will that work? And so what we did was we just started a third Substack. We started a third Substack. We mirrored all of our content onto it. And then we launched it to, to the audience and we said, Hey, like we're doing, we're doing this bundle of these two publications. Again, we didn't announce it as a company. We hadn't, we hadn't even incorporated like all, any of that stuff. We just tried it. And like immediately the business, like, I don't know, I don't know what happened, but it was like doubled overnight. It was like, a, it was like a big thing that you could not miss in the graph. Like, wow, that wow. worked really well. Why do you um, think people cared so much about the bundle? I mean, they could just get your two newsletters separately. Was there some message that said, okay, hey, these are greater than the sum of their parts. So there's like some sort of like higher level purpose we're going to provide for you to get both of these things together. Yeah. I think the big thing is if you already kind of want both of them, then bundling them, you just offer it at a discount. So it was basically $15 a month each for our newsletters. And then it was $20 a month to get both of them. So if you like really like one and uh, you kind of like the other, you're interested in it, but like, you know, if you would pay $15 a month for it, um, the bundle is like a pretty good deal. And that's great because, you know, this is sort of like the magic of bundling is it's basically a form of price discrimination where you can say like, okay, I'm going to average out your demand for like three different products almost and say, okay, like person A is like really into like this publication and not so into that publication. And then this other publication, they kind of like a little bit, but they have some demand, but it's not enough to charge like the market clearing price. Take that across a whole bunch of different consumers and everyone's got their own unique kind of like preference curve. And then you can kind of just average it all together to like just sum the like willingness to pay across each publication. And it equals some number that's like less than they would all cost if you added them up as individual prices but more than what people would pay if each one was charging their own individual price. So it's like win-win for consumers because consumers get access to more stuff, more options for like less money. And it's a win for creators because consumers are spending a little bit extra than they normally would spend because they normally would just be missing out on a whole bunch of things that now they get access to because they're paying a little bit more, but they don't have to pay the full price more. So anyway, I've tried to, it's a very, it ends up being very mathy. And I wrote like a whole post about it, kind of like digging into the math with like an Excel model and graphs and all this kind of stuff. I got really fascinated by just sort of like the, almost like the economics of that. And it was just insanely cool to see when we launched like our own bundle like it's like wow that actually worked <laughs> like that's that's pretty wild <laughs> yeah yeah it's cool and i think it's uh i think this whole idea of bundling things together is, is like criminally underused it's just like people don't think about it that much um in publications and writing like it happens you know but like for example even with like SaaS companies i talked to so many different indie hackers who are working on like little different tools etc and trying to get attention and like very rarely do they come together you know one company to another and maybe several other companies and say let's bundle our products together you know let's offer like some value to customers like we have a a, you know, a business suite or whatever, um, which could add a lot of value. And it could like get them a lot more customers, a lot more attention than they got otherwise. So I wonder if people will follow your example uh, and do more of this bundling stuff in the future because it's so lucrative and like just makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people have this association with bundles that it's like the cable bundle and everyone hates the cable bundle. So it must be bad. <laughs> you know, that's what I thought. Like I wouldn't yeah. have thought of this if Nathan hadn't been like, look at the economics of bundling. It's so cool, you know? Um, and it's true. Like it works. It works really well, uh, if, if you, if you do it right. Um, and, and obviously it's a core part of our business, um, that has driven a lot of, a lot of growth for us. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
What do you think about the opposite process of unbundling? Because you could say that something like Substack has been unbundling bigger publications, right? Like individual journalists are leaving the New York Times and leaving um, other huge publications to go write on their own. And that seems to be a big draw for them. It seems to like for the writers seem to be like a better deal. Totally. Yeah. The, the two things I'll say about that and then also the cable bundle thing is there's definitely a lot of places when unbundling makes a lot of sense or just never starting with a bundle in the first place. So like um, one key thing is like, your uh, enjoyment or experience of one thing like should not be inhibited by other things in the bundle that you don't like. So in Spotify or Netflix, there's a lot of movies that I don't like, but I'm not really annoyed by their presence there. <laughs> like it doesn't right. get in my way. Um, so like that's a really that's a really important thing. And maybe if there's like just really one columnist at the New York Times that you just want to read their stuff, and but the New York Times doesn't make it easy to just subscribe to that one person. You have to sign up for some whole opinion newsletter or app, or you visit their website and it's like several clicks or whatever. There's value to just being able to access it. And that's, that's just purely a product function almost. Like it doesn't, it's not inherent to like, oh, you have to buy the bundle to be a part of it. But also if there's other stuff in the bundle that really has zero value, like let's say the only way in the world to buy like French fries was to also buy a hamburger and a soda, Right. That would be really annoying because like some people just want fries sometimes, you know, and so you don't have to offer everything only as a bundle. You could also separate out where it's like there's like a la carte or whatever. And we do try that on our in the same way that you can sort of get, you know, a monthly subscription to every you can also technically get a standalone subscription uh, to just one of the newsletters. But it's also kind of buried because we just wanted to see like, do people want this? Like, so it's the same offer as before of like 15 a month, $150 a year versus the 20 or 200 for the whole bundle. But yeah, basically, if you're paying for a lot of stuff that you really, truly don't want, like if you just want one, cha- like all you care about in the cable bundle is ESPN or something, then that can be a bad deal. But there's this other part of bundling where sometimes people perceive it to be a bad deal and it's really not, which is the price of the bundle should never be just the sum of all the individual prices, right? That's like defeats the whole purpose of bundling. It should be at some discount because you've got to assume not everyone wants everything equally. So people often think though, oh, like I'm paying $70 a month for cable and all I want is ESPN and I'm getting 70 channels. So shouldn't I just pay $1 a month for ESPN? It's like, nah, that's not how it works. <laughs> ESPN, if it was on its own, would probably be charging 40, you know, like yeah. they like, and, and so that is, that is a thing that is um, a little bit difficult. It's just the consumer perception of value can get warped, especially if it's a really long lasting bundle that's been around for a while. I think with paid newsletters, it feels kind of fresh, like, oh, $20 a month for like, three newsletters I want and a couple other ones that's also seem kind of cool feels like a good deal because we're so we're in the unbundling moment where it's salient for people like ah one of these individually is probably 10 15 20 bucks a month yeah and I think uh for you in particular like the bundle you've created it's not sort of arbitrary like if I go to the New York Times like I'm getting news but it's like it's news about everything you know like there's it's really hard to like focus in and be like well what do I really want from the New York Times um with every it's like very specific you're focused on business. I mean, I'm reading your description right now. It says, every is a bundle of business-focused newsletters. And we see business as an endeavor that's intellectually interesting. And we hope to build a better world by helping people tell, basically become better business operators. And at the end of the day, like that's a very succinct value proposition. And it makes a lot of sense if I like uh, want to learn about business that I could just go subscribe to every rather than subscribing to like you know a million different newsletters or whatever. Like The fact that you bundle things together makes it easier for me as a consumer to make fewer decisions. Yeah. And and it's also why we kind of, our wedge is like this sort of really specific, like strategy and productivity focus and specifically like tech ish focus. And like, kind of, we've got particular areas we're especially strong on like creator economy type issues. We've got a lot of good stuff on that. Like I've written, we have a publication means of creation that I do with Legion. So we've got our kind of like niche that we carve out within that. And then hopefully in the same way that, you know, whatever, like Facebook started at Harvard or Uber started in San Francisco, we can get to other industries like, you know, wealth management or waste management. Those are like the two go-tos that we have. Everything from wealth management to waste management. Uh, yeah, hopefully we can get to those, but we got to figure out a lot of core kind of like mechanics first and, and, and learn and get it really working in our kind of like white hot center of, you know, active, where everything's super liquid and we're driving a lot of cross discovery and the value is really working up for, for the bundle for people. And uh, I don't think we're there yet. We've got a lot of work to do to even sort of make San Francisco, quote unquote, if we're Uber, like make that work for us. Well, you started off with like very humble beginnings. You guys combined your two newsletters into one Substack newsletter. You saw that that was a definite spike in your business. Uh, where did you go from there? Because you've come a long way since then. 
the next thing that we did was we what we wanted to do is start to experiment with adding more people into the bundle. So we knew it could work with Nathan and I who just kind of effectively pooled our resources and we're kind of like, we both collectively own the company, even though it wasn't even incorporated as a company, but like theoretically we would, we would own it. We wanted to know like, what would it take to, to get a writer who wasn't part of the company, but maybe like just had a newsletter or could start a newsletter with us um, as a writer more or less. Um, and so the first, the first thing that we did was just starting to go find another writer. And uh, we ended up partnering with this guy, Tiago Forte, who is a really um, well-known productivity expert. He has, a, he has a course called Building a Second Brain, which is, which is amazing. And he has this newsletter called – this paid newsletter called Praxis. And we wanted to just basically figure out like if we, if we launch with someone like that, what happens? Like if we, if we can incorporate his paid newsletter Praxis, like what is the deal that we could give to someone like that that would make it appealing? And then what happens if if we do get someone like that to join the bundle? Do we still see a right. lot of growth? Right. Um, and so that moment was another moment where we tried it and it worked. Like we found a deal that worked for him and we grew a lot when we did it. Um, he converted a lot of his audience into paying subscribers for every and it seemed like a good thing for both sides. Can you explain what that like that pitch was like to get Tiago Forte to, to join you? Because like that's a hard pitch to to make, right? Like he's doing just well, just fine on his own. Yeah, I, I think um, basically the the pitch at the time was, hey, like we know you. Here's this here's this way that you can reach with your newsletter more people who might want to pay for it right now, but probably won't um, because it doesn't offer enough value. But if you pitch they get your newsletter plus a couple other ones that they've heard of like super organizers or divinations for a little bit of a higher price. You'll be able to get people who wouldn't have ordinarily signed up. For, his newsletter is called Praxis who wouldn't have ordinarily signed up for Praxis. But because it now is offered with some other stuff, like it pushes them over the edge. And so you're going to make more money and you're going to have a bigger audience for this newsletter than you would ordinarily. Um, and that was the, that was the idea. And, 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 and it was kind of trying to respond to the objection of like, well, what about my, my own newsletter that I'm currently running? Like, am I cannibalizing it? Um, and the, the answer was, well, what we hope is the way that these bundle economics works is that people who really just want Praxis are going to sign up for Praxis on its own through you. But people who want it a little bit, but really want some other stuff that might come with it are going to sign up through us. And currently you're not monetizing them, but we will help you. Right. right. And Praxis, you know, it's still available as a standalone subscription that is a lot cheaper. So if you want to just get Praxis, you can pay less for it. So there's it, the cannibalization thing is a little bit, if they were the same price or something, like there's some people who have newsletters that are like, you know, very financy and they charge $40 a month. That's tough for us <laughs> to make that sell where it's like, get this newsletter right. and a bunch of other stuff that you might also like for cheaper. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. We have to raise our <laughs> overall price for that to uh, work. Right. Yeah. yeah. Cool. So, so, so he, he yeah, just cool. continued publishing his newsletter on his own. It's kind of like a risk-free deal for him. Like, why not yeah. also co-publish it to your bundle, get yeah. some extra subscribers, and there's really no downside. Yeah, exactly. And and we structured it so it was like it's a six-month commitment, so it doesn't work. It's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was just like a, it was just a test. And for him, also, it's his side thing. Like his big thing is the courses, so he can be a little bit more experimental with it. Um, so we tried it, it worked again and we're like, wow, we're really like everything we're doing is working. This is crazy. Um, (laughs) and so we're like, now we're making money. Maybe we should incorporate. So we incorporated, Uh um, (laughs) which was, which is kind of funny. Yeah. I think Um, we're at like 10 K MRR when we finally, uh, (laughs) (laughs) like created an entity, which is kind of fun because all my other businesses have created an entity like very far in advance of revenue and the revenue never really, uh, came. So, right, right. Right. I think we take a lot of pride in kind of like putting first things first. It's like, let's mm-hmm. make a product that people want and we'll pay for. And then we can figure out all the other stuff after like the trappings of whatever. Like we, we took us like a year to make swag, um, which, which the swag is awesome, but also I think we were, we were both pretty proud of. Um, and so at that point we were like, okay, this is working. It's a, it's a business. We honestly, we hadn't even announced it as a business. It was just, it just still just looked like a couple sub stacks to the outside world. And then we decided to raise money for it, which was, that was another big conversation about like, what should we do? How much should we raise? Like all that kind of stuff. Because uh, my, my previous background is bootstrapping. I had bootstrapped my business before I sold it. And, and Nathan's background was venture. And I was very skeptical of venture. And Nathan was very skeptical of building a really big business through bootstrapping. And so we had to really kind of like merge our perspectives. And I think we, we came to something 
really good um, and has yeah. been helpful for us. Yeah. Seems like a discussion that is uh, rife for requiring you guys to go to founder therapy. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> a pretty big disagreement. How did you decide that the right decision was to to raise venture capital? Well, we did it in a very funky way. So first of all, we're very clear, like, this is anticipating to be the, like, potentially the only money we ever raise. There could be some time in the future when we want to raise more, but maybe not. Like, we're not, we're just because we decide to raise now, it doesn't mean we decide to get on the treadmill. Okay, so how do you avoid getting on the treadmill? One really important thing is to just stay pretty close to profitability. Um, that's that's really important. So that was a decision we made as a part of that fundraise that we communicated really clearly to all of our all of our investors. Another thing is to not let the valuation cap on the on the safe sort of like get away from us. A lot of company. I mean, we probably could have raised at like two x or maybe even more of the cap just because caps are crazy these days for early stage companies. Granted, we're a media company and maybe whatever some stuff is not as attractive as some tech companies, but still, um, you know, we we went with a pretty low cap because we wanted to imagine. Okay, let's say we don't raise any more money. Let's say we just want to keep operating this for like a while. We love running the business. It's working. It's growing. But we want to buy out these initial investors at some point if they want to be bought out because there may not be some imminent liquidity event. What's a cap and an amount we raise on that cap that we could envision ourselves paying out some reasonable multiple for in the future to buy that stock back? So the higher your cap, the more you raise, the much more difficult that becomes and becomes most startups just never do that. They either get acquired or they return zero money to their investors. So we wanted to keep that reasonable. Um, and we also like, uh, one of our investors, uh, coined it like Mirandizing. Like we read our Mir the Miranda rights to our investors where we're like, you know, look, like don't invest. Like you have a right to not invest in this. If you don't like, we're not doing the traditional venture thing. You know, we're raising, we're raising this money, but it might be the last money we raise. We might well, offer to buy you out in like five years. If that's the path that it seems like it's going down, whatever. Um, and everyone was cool with that. Basically everyone was like, yeah, like I want to invest in you regardless because, well, there's like a couple people that said no, but most of the people, it was also, we were just focusing on angels, you know, like people who they're, it's not institutional capital for the most part that had a very specific profile. We did raise from Bedrock. They do have a very specific profile and Bedrock was just basically like, yeah, like y'all want to build a big business. I get if you don't want to get ahead of yourselves, I get if media, you know, like is, is historically kind of tricky, but like you, you have the vision for what you're building. We believe in the vision for what you're building. We think this will work out. So it was a little bit of a non-traditional race, but it's also, it's getting less crazy, like, uh, to, to do that, like notion didn't raise money for a long time until they raised a huge round. GitHub didn't raise money for a long time until they raised a huge round. Shopify, you know, MailChimp. There are really big businesses that have been built this way. And I think a lot of the forces of operating a business this way make you a better business. Yeah, yeah, for sure. They force you to be yeah. disciplined. They force you to focus on what actually will keep your company to surviving rather than just getting on this like treadmill of raising more and more and more money and we'll figure it out later. I think one of the things that makes you less traditional in addition to the fact that you didn't want to raise additional rounds was, as you said, like you're a media company, not really a tech company. And generally speaking, people who raise a VC or tech companies who are raising money because it's going to massively accelerate their growth and they'll become this huge phenomenon in the future. I guess, what does your future vision look like? Like, how do you convince investors that you're going to build some huge, massive thing when you're not a tech company? Or is that even the pitch that you needed to make? Totally. Uh, well, we did. I mean, we did have to. We did have to say, like, look, we have a big vision for this, and this is how we think it can be big. It may not be big on the timescale of like traditional venture, and so we want to reserve the uh, the idea that that it, that it won't, and make that decision in a year or two when we know a little bit more about the business. So you should know that you're taking the option of it being really big, and we're going to try our best to make it really big. But in the case there, there it's not. We want to preserve the optionality to, to run the business that we want to, that we want to run. And the, and the vision that we pitched is is kind of what we what we we've talked about today, which is uh, we want to cover every topic in business. We want to be a a, a place where uh, readers can come and we can we can provide them an experience where we match them with 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 the kinds of writers that uh, we think are going to be good for them. So every reader kind of gets their gets their own experience. And we have this new economic model for writers that we believe will help us acquire the best writers. And we can kind of create this flywheel where we have we have a lot of readers that we can drive to writers that helps us attract the best writers and we have the best deal for writers which helps us attract more readers and we kind of create this machine um, that we think can get big really big over time so that's the thing that we pitched and we also kind of 
said, but also it might not exactly work like that. And we, we want to take the time to figure that out. And I think our investors were, were pretty cool with that idea. And I should also note that it's, it was easier for us because we both have software tech backgrounds and have deep relationships with venture capitalists and angels. And so I think many of them looked at us and looked at what we were doing and said like, well, they have the right profile. So even if I don't fully believe in exactly what they're doing right now, like mm-hmm. they'll probably just pivot to software. They'll get tired of this media thing eventually <laughs> and they'll probably just pivot to software. I don't think that that's what our lead thinks. Our lead believes in what we're doing and understands it really well and thinks it can be big. But I think a lot of our angels did. Yeah. I, I think to me, there's like this pretty clear, exciting thing about like our model that's really different from a normal media company, which is normal media companies, the way they work is they have a brand and it stands for one pretty specific thing and all the articles pretty much go out to all of their readers. And so the problem with that is, and then the other thing they do is they mostly monetize via ads. And this is the model when people say media doesn't do well with venture capital or whatever, this is the model that people have in mind. We're not this model in two ways that I think are pretty important. You know, I think we think are, we think are really important that may or may not work, but it's at least like in theory, it's a good reason why we might be able to exceed the the scale of some of those. One is the every brand doesn't publish any articles. We only publish articles under sub brands, which are individual newsletters. And those can be extremely tight and focused and, and unique to the author or the, or the authors that are kind of like driving it. Um, but overall, every is just a collection. We're like a pastiche of all these different cool things. That's like, I think that can, that sort of brand architecture almost can scale a little bit better than, than sort of like a normal media company. And the key way that we make that work is by, having really good cross promotion of the newsletters to our readers. So for a reader, if we have algorithms that are like, you know, based on some combo of explicit signals, like following or implicit signals, like time spent reading or rating articles and stuff like that, we recommend really consistently good stuff to you. Then it's got a little bit more platformy type of attributes, basically. We're very early on this. It's very untested, but we're already building some stuff that's kind of like uh, getting to this. Like for new users, we're running an A-B test where half of our new users right now are receiving an email a day and it's a personalized, just whatever we think is going to be the best thing for you. If it's a publication, you if a publication that you follow published a new thing, you just get that. Uh, otherwise, you get like something from our great sets. We have a lot of really evergreen stuff, something that's related to topics you seem to be interested in, etc. So we're early on that, but it, it's like exciting, um, and and we'll, hopefully the results will be promising. But we don't really know yet because we literally it's like less than a week old. So um, <laughs> we'll see. Um, but then the other the other key thing besides that sort of like brand architecture or personalization stuff that I think could help us scale more is the way that we pay out with writers feels more like, oh, I think there's a lot of churn in media. At the very top, there's not as much. Like at the New Yorker, there are people that write there for like forever. The New York Times kind of like same deal. But it's been, it's really hard if you're one of the other companies because people, you know, they're, they're always looking to kind of like level up, go to the next thing. And I think the reason they do that is because it's really hard to get a raise in most of media. I mean, this is why it's better to end up getting like a book deal or something like that, because at least it's like you get a revenue share. Um, I think that the big thing that's happening now, because the internet finally is this sort of like best alternative to negotiated agreement with your publisher is like, well, I could go on my own. I could do a sub stack. There's this confidence with writers that has kind of changed, I think, the negotiations with publishers. And we think of ourselves as kind of like, okay, like what's a model you do in a world where it's really easy for anyone to start their own Substack? It probably does not look like the, what the model you used to be able to get away with as a publisher. And so hopefully we end up having, you know, better talent retention because there's just so much more ownership as a writer of your connection with your audience, your ownership of the upside financially. And um, hopefully that'll help too. So let's talk about marketing, growth, connecting readers to writers. Because this is something that I think most people struggle with on the internet who are trying to start any sort of company, whether they're putting out media, whether they're trying to start a SaaS business, it's hard to get people in the door. And you guys have to be good at that. Otherwise, it's really not a solid reason for writers to join your collective. Uh, what have your strategies been? You know, how do you get people to actually come and read every and subscribe to every? That's a, that's a great question. And the answer that we have so far is like, it's pretty boring, honestly. It's we write, we try to write really good stuff that we think will resonate with people that says something new and interesting that hits on topics that people like have in their heads or answers questions that they have in their heads. And then we, we put it on Twitter uh, and we put it on Hacker News and sometimes it goes viral. And that's like, that's honestly the core. And doing that consistently is, is kind of the core of how we've grown so far. 
Um, there are a couple of like more sophistic- sophisticated, I'll put that in air quotes, sophisticated things that we do too. And, and we're starting to change a little bit because at, at the place we are now, like I think it's useful to start actually being a little bit more in the weeds on like different growth tactics and, and stuff like that. And, and we're, we're, we're really starting to get more sophisticated about that. But I think especially when you're starting out, the thing to do is just make good stuff, uh, especially in media, because that's the idea is like if you write something really good, it's, it's going to spread. So uh, another thing that we've done over time is kind of the model that I that I started with super organizers, which is interviewing people. So when you do an interview with someone and you write it up and you do a good job and they like it, they share it with their audience. So if you can write really good interviews and get people who have successively more and more followers, every time you publish, you you get exposed to their audience and you can kind of recruit their audience to, to be your audience. And then that means you can get someone even more famous next time. It doesn't it doesn't like fully work exactly like that all the time. Like sometimes the famous people don't share it. Honestly, you have to mix in people who are not famous because sometimes famous people are just aren't very good interviews. They just like have these bits that they just like give you and but they've given it to 100 people before. So it's, right. it doesn't feel as like raw. Other things that we've done right now, something that we're experimenting with is just like doing cross promos with other newsletters. We have someone who's doing growth with us and he's just setting up different cross promos with newsletters that that we're a fan of. Um, and that has been actually fairly successful so far. But yeah, I think I think we're we're just at the very earliest stages of figuring out like how to grow beyond. Yeah, just just writing stuff that that people really like. Yeah. Yeah. And I think all the like other stuff kind of depends on that first core layer of just the writing being really good. So it's like we focus way more time on editing pieces and like figuring out what makes a good piece and all that kind of stuff than we do like, you know, doing cross promo or whatever else. We're just now starting to do some cross promo, but it's like the cross promo wouldn't work if the pieces weren't that good. And if the pieces are good, you don't need cross promo that bad because people just share it on Twitter. So it's like really the high order bit is just editorial focus basically. Yeah, there's nothing more shareable than basically articles online. We've got a URL. Yeah. Every single social network is formatted to allow you to share links <laughs> and like blow it up into a cool little uh, expanded version with a picture and stuff. Like if you write good content, people will share it. What have you learned about writing good content? We're developing some like frameworks around this. One is um, uh, engine drag and lift. So three interesting things. Lift is a new one that Rachel Jepson, our executive editor, came up with that I love. But so the engine of the piece is like the core idea of like, why am I here in the first place? You know, it's just like, oh, like you're going to learn, like if you're here, it's like, oh, you're going to learn how to start a, a new media company um, or at least how these people did it. And, and you know, whatever, like you're going to learn a bunch of like random other bits about this kind of world along the way, like maybe co-founder relationships, whatever. That's like the engine of this podcast interview that we're doing. Drag is like, okay, maybe you have a really strong engine but just the way you wrote it like the sentences don't make sense they're not kind of they don't logically flow from each other you start to feel lost you know and so i think about it kind of like a car this is funny this is before i got into formula one now that i'm into formula one i'm like way into this analogy um but it's sort of like if you have a car that has really terrible aerodynamics no matter how strong the engine is people are gonna fall off but it's really hard as an editor to fix an engine that's just not there. Like sometimes the engine is just weak or like, Oh, it only appeals to like a really tiny subset of people. And it's kind of like, this is very specific. Like maybe you might want to make it a little bit more broad or something like that. But you know, the engine is, is, is kind of like the core reason why you're there. The drag is like anything in the way that it's written that gets in the way of sort of accessing the power of that engine. And then lift is just funny little things like voice or jokes or tone that kind of like keep you sticking around. It's like when someone makes you chuckle in the middle of writing or someone just points out something that's really insightful, even if it's besides the point of the engine, you're just kind of re-upped for another like two minutes at least <laughs> of reading, you know, because like something good may be around the corner. And so that little lift, those little nice, those those kind of help too. But yeah, I don't know. that That's kind of like our overall framework. Um uh, Dan, you, you've got a lot of other stuff on this too, though. Yeah, I mean, I think that there, there's there's a lot of things within that, like what makes a good engine, and and also like how do you get the best out of out of writers? So like one one lesson that we keep learning over and over again is like writers, the best pieces are written by writers who care about those pieces and want to write them, and trying to make a writer do something that they don't want to do is like not going to not going to really work. So it's a, like a lot of the best pieces come from writers kind of digging into their own soul on like what they're interested in. And if they're interested in it, then it will probably do well for people who are like them. And so or, or interested in the same things as they are. And so like that's reflected in our model. Like Nathan and I don't go to writers and be like, hey, you should write about this this week. Like we're like each publication inside of every each newsletter is its own publication with its own writer who has the voice and vision of the newsletter and is the one who has the finger on on the pulse of the audience. 
and gets to say like, this is, this is what I'm into. And this is where I want to lead the audience, you know, within certain bounds, obviously. And our job is to help them do that better to bring that out, bring more, more of them out into their pieces rather than being the ones who like assign stories and say like, here's what you got to cover. And that's, that's one of the reasons why we think this can be bigger than just like productivity and strategy tech focused articles is like the, the, the vision for each publication lives in the writer. And it's, so it's a little bit more decentralized than like a typical media company. So that's, that's one thing. And, and it's really hard to, to, to remember that because I think we typically like are like, you should do this and get, get excited about it. And it just <laughs> we almost get excited never about works. ideas. Yeah. You yeah. Know? Like yeah. It feels like, oh, like, you know, we have a media company. We should be able to be excited about ideas and get people right. to do our ideas. But it's like, ah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Not if we want it done well. Yeah. <laughs> like, right. It's just our yeah. idea. You know, the vision's yeah. in, in our head and, you know, yeah. So I've got some stuff that I write. Dan has some stuff that he writes. We have things that we're excited about, but, um, help. It's like the purpose of the company ultimately is to be like a jetpack for writers to get what they want faster and a, and yeah. a parachute. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know? It's yeah. That, that but, fallacy yeah. is like the media equivalent of like, I just need a technical co-founder to make this idea work. Right. I just you know? need to hire it's some like, nerds to, to yeah. build this app and then I'll exactly. write it. It'll be perfect. In. We'll all get rich. Yeah. It's like, actually, no, you got, they have to want it too, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, for me, it's like, oh, I have this idea. You should write it. It's like, actually, no, I should just write it because you don't have that idea or whatever, yep. you know? Yep. So, that, that's that's one big thing that we've learned, I think, like in terms of different engines, like pieces that um, put their finger on things that people have been thinking a lot, but like haven't, don't have the words for usually do really, really well. Pieces that hit on timely topics, but have something to say that is like new and interesting do really well. And that's hard, actually. It's really hard to chase that. We, we just we just recorded a podcast yesterday where we were talking about this feeling that uh, you almost need to have your finger on the pulse of like what people are publishing so that you can do it too. And it's like actually, but once you start doing that, once you start like looking at what everyone else is doing, like you you lose whatever that is that can get people interested in what you're doing because you're no longer original and you're just kind of like recycling ideas. So I think both of us probably read few newsletters honestly we probably just read a lot of books and do a lot of thinking and talking to people that we think are smart and that's a really good way to to generate some of these ideas so yeah it's like a tricky a tricky line to walk because people really like to share and talk about things that like they already sort of know about you know if like people are all talking about a particular thing then it's just like you know like during the election season for example everybody wants to share articles about the election because like all their friends are reading about it and talking about it but it is true that if you follow what everybody else is doing what everybody else is doing too closely that you do lose what makes you unique and what makes you special and so i like your strategy of sort of reading books and reading things that other people aren't necessarily reading because then you can sort of react to that you know and you'll come with fresh ideas that people haven't heard before and you can if you want to apply it to topics that people are you know, excited to share and talk about. I'm curious. I mean, Indie Hackers has an amazing audience. And like, oh, do, does like what we just said vibe with your experience? Like also, we don't have real hard. We have some podcasts. Uh, none of them are that big yet. Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm curious if it works differently in podcasts. Sorry, I, I want to turn right, the table right. selfishly yeah. really quick if that's okay. <laughs> yeah, totally. Podcasts are a very different medium than, than written content, and it's easy to get sucked into like you know the paradigms of one and try to like transplant those to the other, and it doesn't necessarily work. Um, for example, you talked about like the engine drag and lift. I think drag for a podcast is a lot about sort of the rapport between like the guest and the host, right? How smoothly is the conversation flowing? And if it's like a sort of awkward, stilted conversation that doesn't sound like people know each other or are friendly with each other, it's just hard to listen to. So some of my best episodes, for example, have just been with people who I'm really close to where people can tell that we're close. And I think it's because people generally listen to podcasts, even if they're educational, for more entertainment, like past the time sort of purposes. You know, they're just sort of going to walk the dog or going on a run or going to the, you know, store. And like, they just want something that's just like smooth flowing and that feels really good. And so like, that's an example of something specific that might be in a podcast, but not in written um, yeah, form. vibing. Yeah, exactly. And then for like the web stuff, like we don't hire... Well, we do actually work with like a few journalists and stuff, but like generally speaking, like random people all over the world write stuff for indie hackers. And our sort of process is very different from yours. So we're not like, oh, how do we only get the best content possible? We're much more like, how do we get as many people as possible writing and then create an algorithm and like a community of people who upvote and filter the best stuff to the top? And then we'll just promote that and put that in our newsletter. And that's sort of an incentive to get people to write better stuff. But like, I don't, you know, at any point in time, expect most of the stuff written on any hackers to be particularly good. So as long as the homepage is good, that's fine. And so it's a very different approach. I mean, I'm looking at your homepage right now for every, and you kind of have uh, just like a giant list of articles. And it's default yeah. sorted by newest 
Uh, it hasn't always been like that. I remember going to your website in the past and like it was kind of like, here's what every is. And you talked about your brand and your publications. So I'm curious like why you decided to switch to this sort of, um, I guess, reverse chronological list of articles. Because I, like, right. I would guess it's because you want people to develop a habit of coming to your homepage and reading it. Yeah, but that's just the logged in versus the logged out experience. So you're logged in now. If you open it, right. you'll probably see the same thing that you're remembering. Okay, I see. Yeah, so it's very different. So it's yeah. not like... Because any hackers, we do just like the logged in experience is the same as a logged out experience. We just give you a list right. of articles. The idea is very much like develop a regular daily habit of coming to read the site and seeing what's new, which I think only happens if things are changing at like a very regular clip. So for us, like volume is very important. Yeah, totally. We It's something that we talked about like before we were building our own platform because, you know, we used to be on Substack and, you know, all of a sudden it's like we have a choice. Like, what do we want our homepage to look like, you know? And... um you know, there's two different directions you can go with it, or you can try and find some different middle ground. But there's like the, you know, do you want it to be like a landing page that describes what the thing is? Or do you just want to have a bunch of articles, right? Like, so it's like, ah, just get people into reading as fast as possible. And um, we ended up going for the landing page that describes what the thing is, because it felt like it's a new thing. We want to give people a chance to feel like they're oriented. You know, it felt like, really useful to sort of say overall, what do we do? Like, what do we focus on? What are we all about? But then to get your email and get you in, and then you just have the list of articles basically. And so that's basically the way it works now. But yeah, we're definitely going to keep experimenting with that as we, as we grow. And maybe the need for like an explanatory homepage will lessen or something like once, if it's like becomes really well known or something like that, like the dynamics could change, but yeah. Well, cool. I've, I feel like I've mined you guys for information about how your business works. It's super cool. I hope this model ends up being sort of a winner in the long run, not just for YouTube's sake, but because I think it's better for writers. It's better for readers. Uh, I am the guy who spent a lot of time combing the internet last year trying to put together, you know, the perfect collection of newsletters that I would want to actually read in my inbox every day. And I just subscribed to every and hopefully that'll save me (laughs) a lot of time because I created (laughs) a random hodgepodge that is not at all always high quality. So uh, I love what you guys are up to. Thank you Amazing. so much. That means a ton, really. Yeah, and I, I love what you're up to too. Thank you for <laughs> thank you for, for doing everything that you do. I have learned a ton from from the podcast and from what people write in the community. So it mean, means a lot to be here. Cool. Well, can you guys let people know where they can go to find every and also uh, whatever else it is that the two of you guys are working on? Yeah. Uh, they can find us at every.to, every.to, or on Twitter at, at every. And yeah, subscribe. All right. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.